Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Alyssa Stankowicz and Hortense Bioy discuss the best approaches to ESG investing, Amy Arnott fills us in on why investors earn less than the funds they invest in, Russ Kinnell predicts what to expect for capital gains payouts in 2021, and Christine Benz has your November financial to-do list. Let's get started. Here are Alyssa Stankowicz from Morningstar Research Services and Hortense Bioy from Morningstar UK. Hi, my name is Alyssa Stankowitz. I'm a sustainability analyst within Morningstar Manager Research. At Morningstar, we've identified six distinct approaches to sustainable investing. These include applying exclusions, limiting ESG risk, seeking ESG opportunities, practicing active ownership, targeting sustainability themes, and assessing impact. Today, we're speaking with Hortense Bioy, who is the Global Director of Sustainability Research within Morningstar Manager Research. Hi, Hortense. Hi, Harissa. Today, we're here to talk about two of these approaches, divestment, which is related to applying exclusions, and engagement, which is one form of practicing active ownership. Both of these movements are growing, which is leading to a debate, especially in the context of the climate crisis. What can you tell me about that? Yes, you're absolutely right, Alisa. And I think this is absolutely fascinating because both movements are are growing, are really growing fast. Uh, Today, there are more than 1,300 institutions globally representing over $14 trillion that have committed to um, some form of fossil fuel divestment. Uh, A recent prominent example is uh, three New York City pension funds, which announced that they were going to divest $4 billion worth of fossil fuel companies. At the same time, more asset managers and asset owners are saying that they are engaging with companies to try and improve the ESG practices and in the context of the climate crisis to accelerate the transition to a low carbon economy. So let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of these approaches. Why might investors choose to divest? Well, there there are several uh, reasons why a sustainability-aware investor might want to divest from a stock or a particular sector. Uh, The first and and most common reason is is ethical. Uh, They want to avoid complicity with companies that don't align with the values. Other investors may want to divest to influence companies by increasing the cost of capital. This strategy seeks to hamper the company's ability to pursue investments in the activities that the investor dislikes. Interesting. What about financial reasons to divest? Uh, You're right. There are financial uh, reasons also to to divest. Uh, Some investors divest to reduce risk in the portfolio, especially if they think that those risks haven't been priced in by the market properly. For example, investors might divest from fossil fuel companies because of the various risks associated with climate change. And finally, an opportunistic argument to divest is to free up capital so you can invest in other possibly more profitable companies. What are the arguments against divesting? I know there's one big concern about foregoing returns. 
Yes, that's right. There, there is always the possibility that the companies that you sell out of end up performing better than the companies you've bought with your divestment money. You could also miss out on opportunities. So if you avoid all oil and gas companies, for example, you might miss out on those companies that are transitioning to be competitive in a low-carbon economy. Interesting. So how effective is divestment at actually driving change? Well, so far, actually, there is little evidence to show that divesting is influencing companies or increasing their cost of capital. Some research found that 20% of a stock would need to be sold for the cost of capital to increase. But uh, that would set a high bar for effective divestment campaigns. There's also a, a, another counter-argument to divestment. Um, it's that when investors sell their shares of a company, they are bought by other investors. So divesting from an oil and gas company doesn't do anything to reduce its carbon emissions. Selling dirty assets could actually make things worse if these assets end up in private hands because there is much less transparency in private markets than there is in public markets. So a solution might be to stay invested in these companies and try to engage? Uh, yes, uh, if, of course, it makes financial sense to stay invested in these companies. In this case, a responsible manager with the appropriate resources should engage with the companies, try and influence them. Uh, so that they improve their practices and mitigate the risks that the asset managers would have identified. Engagement now can take many forms. Uh, asset managers uh, and asset owners can engage with companies through letters to CEOs, conversations with uh, investor relations people, meeting with uh, top executives and, and the board members. They can also do collaborative engagement to give more weight to the conversations. So what would you say are some hallmarks of a good engagement strategy? Well, what's really important uh, when managers and, and asset owners engage with companies is that they set measurable expectations for improvement and that they put in place a clear escalation strategy. For example, if a company doesn't make sufficient progress towards the goals set by a manager, then the manager may vote against a company management and the board of directors, signaling the lack of confidence in the leadership's ability to address the company's risks. That's actually an increasingly popular strategy. Hmm. I know voting can be a powerful tool, but what if that alone doesn't prove effective? Yeah, it's true that voting doesn't always work. And, uh, and I think that's why divestment, or at least uh, the possibility of divestment, remains an important tool uh, to have in the toolkit. Uh, the absence of divestment threat uh, would render engagement toothless. Now, I think to conclude, uh, what we can say is that far from being mutually exclusive, engagement and divestment can be mutually reinforcing and if a manager does decide to sell, a noisy exit is preferable then and more impactful than a silent one. 
So ultimately, it's not that one approach is better than the other. The two actually go hand in hand. Thank you for your insight today. Thank you for having me, Alisa. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Susan Javinsky from Morningstar, Inc. talks to Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Morningstar recently updated its annual Mind the Gap study, which examines the difference between the reported total returns of funds and the returns that investors actually receive. Joining me today to share some highlights from the study is Amy Arnott. Amy is a portfolio strategist with Morningstar. Thanks for being here today, Amy. Thanks. Great to be here. So let's begin by talking a little bit about what investor returns are and how they differ from the total returns that most of us are used to seeing. Sure. So an investor return is basically a dollar-weighted return, or you might also see it referred to as an internal rate of return. And it reflects the timing of cash flows into and out of a fund. So the regular total returns that fund companies report and that you see in Morningstar and other sources, those are called time-weighted returns. And it assumes that you bought in at the beginning of the period and held for the entire time. Um, but obviously, if you maybe you bought in the middle of the period or you sold partway through, your actual result, results are going to be different than the reported total return. So when we look at this study over time, we found that um, there's a persistent gap between those reported total returns and what we've called investor returns, or the returns that investors have actually earned in a particular fund. And the gap usually isn't in favor of the investor, right? Right. So what we found is for the most recent 10-year period that we looked at for the study that we recently published, the gap was about 1.7 percentage points per year overall for the average investor. So that's, it really can be a significant amount that adds up over time. So what causes that gap to, to exist? Um, it's really the timing of cash inflows and outflows. So as I mentioned, if you didn't invest in the fund for the whole period, you're not gonna get the benefit of returns if they were positive. Um, and so some of these differences are outside of investors' control. You know, a lot of people can't invest a lump sum up front, but instead are maybe investing a portion of each paycheck through their 401k for retirement, which is fine. Um, but unfortunately, we also see a pattern where investors have a tendency sometimes to buy in after there's been a big run up and then sell after things are out of favor. And that is definitely a negative factor for investor returns. So then in the latest study, where have we seen, have there been particular Morningstar fund categories where we've seen wider gaps between the investor returns and the total returns? Right. So the more mainstream categories that um, tend to be the home to the largest amount of assets, like diversified equity funds and uh, taxable bond funds, uh, allocation funds, those areas tend to do relatively well. Um, but on the other hand, sector funds and alternative funds, um, some specialized categories like single country funds, tend to have much wider gaps. 
So then it sounds like in general, investors are less likely to poorly time investments in pretty well diversified investments like an asset allocation fund. Is that right? Exactly. So especially if you're looking at fund categories where they have a built-in um, asset mix that's diversified between stocks and bonds, investors are tending not to try to um, time the market with those funds, but they're you know usually buying and holding them for the long term, which is which is helpful. So, what should be the main takeaway for investors, Amy, from from this study? Um, I think one interesting thing is that this investor return gap is sort of a hidden cost. It's something that you may not realize. Um, but it can really have a significant impact on your returns over time. You know, if you look at something like a typical fund expense ratio, that might be around 1% or more. Uh, tax cost ratio could be 1.5% or more. And then the investor return could be another 1.7%. So if you take up take all those kind of miscellaneous, miscellaneous costs and combine them, it's really a significant drag on your returns. But the positive um, thing is that you can improve your results by taking a more disciplined approach and um, holding for the long term. Well, Amy, thank you so much for these insights today. It's really, in particular, fascinating to think about how this, this gap in investor to total return is really a cost, like so many other costs in investing. And, but this one we can do something about. Exactly. I'm Susan Javinsky. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services shines a light on 2021 capital gains distributions. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Mutual funds typically make capital gains distributions during the fourth quarter each year. Joining me today to discuss what investors can expect this capital gain season is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So let's start with a little bit of a primer on capital gains distributions. Why do funds have to make them, and why do they usually make them in the fourth quarter? Yeah, by law, funds are required to distribute their net capital gains that they realize by the end of uh, October uh, each year. So they have to distribute income, but they also have to distribute uh, all the capital gains they realize. And that doesn't relate to what kind of profits or losses you might have made in the fund. It's, it's sort of independent. After you sell the fund, then that all uh, totals out. But uh, in the meantime, they distribute every year that they realize net gains. So then before funds pay out these distributions, they usually provide what we call estimates of what these distributions will be. When do we usually see those start to come out? Yeah, usually it's the first week in November when those estimates come out. And they're very helpful if you're thinking about buying a taxable uh, account and investment uh, in the last two months of the year. Now, these distributions, of course, matter most to investors who are holding funds in their taxable accounts. You don't really need to worry about it as much if you're holding your fund in a tax-deferred account like a 401k, right? That's right. Distributions in tax-deferred accounts don't matter. So it's, it's only the taxable accounts. So if you do own a mutual fund in a taxable account and you find out that it is going to make a distribution, you're going to pay taxes on that distribution even if you continue to own the fund, right? That's right. Okay. So based on what's gone on in the market this year, Russ, and, and what we've seen with fund flows, what do you sort of expect this capital gains distribution season? Do you think we're going to see a lot of distributions? Do you think they're going to be higher in certain parts of the market or certain types of fund categories than others? What do you expect? 
Yeah, I expect a fairly typical year, so not too different from the past years, and that's partly because uh, returns are, are pretty solid. Uh, U.S. equity returns uh, for a lot of funds are 20% or more, so very good year. Uh, foreign equity, 10% or more, so it's been a strong year. So that certainly suggests that, that we should have uh, a decent amount of capital gains paid out. Now, if an investor that owns a fund that plans to make a distribution and they own the fund in a taxable account, is there anything they should do about it? Probably just prepare to, to, to pay. Uh, only if it's something really extreme would you consider, say, selling. If, say, you bought the fund in June and now it's going to make a 30% capital gains distribution, uh, something like that, which is pretty rare. Uh, otherwise, you really just have to uh, prepare to to uh, pay taxes and avoid the fund for uh, those two months if it's going to be at all a meaningful uh, gain, then you can buy after it's made that payout. And then lastly, Russ, so given that active mutual funds are more likely to make capital gains distributions than, say, a passive fund or an ETF, you know, is there a case to be made that, you know, really, if you want to have active strategies, it might be best to sort of tuck those in your tax-deferred accounts, and if you have taxable accounts, maybe stick more with index funds or ETFs, which tend to be a little bit more tax-efficient from a distribution standpoint? Um, for sure. You, uh, I, I do have some active funds in, in taxable accounts, but for sure, I think some of the best ones for taxable accounts are muni funds for, for similar reasons, as well as ETFs and index funds, because they are very tax efficient. Uh, and then be careful with the active funds you do choose. Some active funds are at least tax aware, and that can help somewhat. Uh, but yeah, definitely be careful. Uh, they are great for uh, tax-sheltered accounts. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today and for helping us walk through some of the issues we need to keep in mind during capital gains season. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, here are Christine Benz and Susan Javinsky from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. 2021 is rapidly winding down, but there's still time to improve your financial position heading into the new year. Joining me to share a few money matters to put on your calendar for the month of November is Christine Benz. Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. It's good to see you too, Susan. So uh, one item on your to-do list for November is to conduct an insurance review. So why is this something that people should be doing annually, and why is November a good time to take care of that? Well, you should do it annually because your situation changes, your health needs might change, your personal situation, dependence and so forth might change. The coverage that you have might change. The competitiveness of the pricing of that coverage might change. So ideally, you would reshop these coverages annually. And I think November is a logical time to do that total insurance review because this is the time of year when many of us are already participating in open enrollment through our employers in terms of our health care coverage. So it's kind of a logical time to revisit all of your health insurance, all of your insurance coverages. So speaking of health insurance coverage through your employer, you know, one fork in the road that people face is should they go with sort of that that preferred provider option, sort of the Cadillac option that we think of, or should they go with a high deductible plan if their employer does provide that? How should they be thinking about that? 
Well, the premium difference will probably be pretty obvious. So typically you will pay a higher ongoing premium to be covered by that PPO with the high deductible healthcare plan. High deductible is right in its name. You are on the hook for some of those expenses. And so I think you wanna think about your financial wherewithal, your ability to cover expenses that you might incur before insurance kicks in. That's really an important part of of the calculus, there are tools that you can find, calculators that can help you crunch numbers based on your own healthcare usage to decide which is the right option for you. You sometimes hear jokes that the high deductible plan is appropriate for the healthy and wealthy because in an ideal use case, you would have someone who has the funds to cover health expenses on an ongoing basis but doesn't have a lot of healthcare usage. So they can take advantage of the health savings account that typically accompanies a high deductible plan, but instead let that money grow, even grow all the way until retirement and take maximum advantage of the tax benefits during that time. And you alluded to the health savings account. So if you're going, if you have chosen for your company's um, high deductible plan, you definitely should be looking into what the health savings account is that comes along with that usually. Right. Uh, and so it needs to be a qualifying high deductible health care plan for you to be able to pair it with an HSA. But certainly to the extent that you expect to have any health care expenses whatsoever next year and you're signing up for a high deductible plan, also participate in the health savings account. And the nice thing is, is that if you're doing this through your employer, those contributions are automatically coming out of your paycheck, so they're pretty painless. And it's a nice way to build yourself a cushion to cover those health care expenses before insurance cut kicks in. So let's move away from health insurance now and just talk about what other types of insurance coverage should you be thinking about in November? Well, if you're doing a total survey of your coverage, you'd want to look at your property and casualty, so your homeowners, your auto insurance. Take a look at life insurance coverage if your situation with dependents has changed, for example. Some people who are getting a little further in life and their kids have uh, flown the nest and are no longer dependent on them, they might be a good candidate for actually dropping life insurance coverage. If it's term insurance especially, that, that might be an easy decision. So do a review of life and certainly disability is a, a coverage type that I often recommend because when you look at the statistics, we're very likely to need disability insurance coverage at some point during our lifetime. So if you're not currently purchasing disability, take a look at whether that might not make sense given your situation. So to um, pivot away from, from insurance for a minute, another one of the to-dos on your list for November is to watch out for capital gains distributions from your, your funds. This is the time of year where we start to see estimates, fund families come out with estimates. What are you thinking, what do you expect that we're going to see this year? Is it going to be another bad year for capital gains distributions, you think? I think it may well be, Susan, because we've had this confluence of events that has been somewhat persistent, where we've had a very strong market environment. Again, so far in 2021, we've had great gains from the U.S. stock market especially, but international stocks have performed well. So a lot of different investment types have had another great year, so they have gains to pay out. And 
And then another factor in the mix is that we have had these un ongoing fund flows out of actively managed mutual funds and into index funds and especially exchange traded funds. And that selling pressure that is building up in some of these active funds forces management of these funds to sell winning securities because they need to pay off the departing shareholders. So this has been something we've seen over the past several years. I wouldn't expect it to abate, except perhaps we have seen maybe the worst is over in terms of active outflows, but I keep thinking that and we keep seeing them. So I do think that investors in active funds within a taxable account should brace themselves that we may see more distributions, especially from U.S. growth funds. I should also underscore, none of this matters if you're holding your investments within a tax-sheltered account. This only matters if you have non-retirement assets that you're holding in a taxable brokerage account. That's the only reason you would be subject to these capital gains distributions. So let's say I do own a fund that's going to, it's estimated to give me a size capital gains distribution this year. What should I be thinking about? Is there anything I should be doing about it? Well, I think it's important to remember that as a fund shareholder, we're liable for taxes on two separate levels. So one is if the fund makes income distributions or capital gains distributions like we're talking about in a given year. Well, if I own the fund in a taxable account, I'll owe taxes on those distributions. Separately, I'll also owe taxes when I sell the fund on any gain that I have in the fund. The thing about the distributions that we've been talking about is that you are able to increase your cost basis in the holding. So if you receive one of these distributions and you reinvest it, you don't spend it, that increases your cost basis. That means that when I hit that second phase and I want to sell myself, my capital gains basis has been stepped up. And so the tax hit at that time is relatively less. So I think the key decision point here is whether this is something you want to hold or not. Don't let taxes be the decision maker. Look at your holding. If it's something that you wanted to sell anyway, and it's about to make a distribution, you could sell now ahead of the distribution. And remember that even if you hang on, you do get that increase in your cost basis to account for these taxes that you're paying this year. And that lessens the tax bill when you eventually sell. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today and for giving us some tasks to take care of in the month of November. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances.
Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.